Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast exploring the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and changemakers. How would you define your relationship with failure? Regardless of your answer, you're going to learn a thing or two from today's guest about failure and how to look at it in a new light so you can go from failure sucks to failure rules. Andrew Thorpe King is an executive fintech banker, spy novelist, speaker, punk rocker, podcaster, ex-bodybuilder, cigar lover, serial entrepreneur, serial failure, and author of Failure Rules, the five rules of failure for entrepreneurs, creatives, and authentics. In this conversation, he shares many stories that form the foundation of his five rules of failure. He also touches on a wide range of topics covering the world of punk rock, spirituality, building a portfolio of pursuits, and wielding chaos as an idea engine. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 649. Well, I got to say, your list of titles wins the best title ever trophy. Executive fintech banker, spy novelist, speaker, yep. punk rocker, yep. podcaster, ex-bodybuilder, cigar lover, as I can see, serial yep. entrepreneur, and serial failure. That's right. That's the so, kicker right there. Exactly. <laughs> so at the moment, which title fills you with the most pride? Mm, that's a good question. Well, I'd say since I wrote Failure Rules, and uh, for your audience, the book's called Failure Rules, The Five Rules of Failure for Entrepreneurs, Creatives, and Authentics. Like, you know, this is kind of at the moment, like my my crown jewel project. And the cool thing about it is it's really like, you know, at this stage of my life, late 40s, after decades of kind of off-road entrepreneurial adventuring, <laughs> like this ties together all those disparate interests and experiences that you mentioned. I mean, everything from being a bodybuilder to write a spy novel, to being a, a fintech banker, to uh, owning two record labels, you know, and being a cigar lover, all these interests and entrepreneurial pursuits, they kind of all tie in with this book and it really represents the width of my personality and somehow makes those things make sense. You know, that, <laughs> right. that I can be a, you know, a cigar smoking tattooed banker who listens to punk rock, uh, but also has an interest in spirituality. Like tying all those things together under the one roof of this, you know, this body of work. Yeah. So I think this right at this point in my life, this is kind of the thing that, uh, you know, puts most uh, gas in my tank. Yeah, that's awesome. What, I mean, what got you into punk rock? Oh man, I guess um, I was probably in like seventh grade and this was like, whatever, in the, in the eighties, right? Late eighties. Mm -hmm. And um, I was always into music, but was just like listening to like classic rock or, you know, whatever, everything from Grateful Dead to the ACDC or whatever, like when mm -hmm. I was younger. Yeah. Uh, but even then, like dressing the part, like being like eight years old, going to school with like a, a jean jacket with like a Jimi Hendrix patch on it and a Zeppelin patch on it. Right. Nice. I was always into music, but uh, I was also into like BMX and skateboarding. And I remember getting a, a cassette tape, um, you know, I think. Uh, you know, with, with a mix of bands on it, but it was like Murphy's Law, Black Flag, the Dead Milkmen who were from Philly, this band Ruined from Philly, you know, Sex Pistols, all those kind of quintessential bands. And like when I heard like the rawness and like the urgency uh, of punk rock back then, like that was it. Like throw away all my class rock stuff. You know, now <laughs> later in life, I still appreciate it, right? I mean, right. I still listen to Sabbath, but. You know, but when I heard that stuff, it was just like there was something to it. Like, and there was an accessibility, particularly as you go to shows and like there's no barriers. And you might even meet the guys in the band or, or yeah. people who are hanging out with the band. And it's like 
the, the community of that scene and like, you know, I guess the, the camaraderie that came about with it, you know, and just how the lyrics were more based off like, you know, real feelings of, of, of you know, like uh, of people growing up and struggling with the things that people struggle with, you know, trying to, you know, make congruent, you know, your, your inner life with the outer world, you know, and like that to me was what punk was all about. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 49 years old and it's still, it's still the soundtrack in my life. You know, I actually have a soundtrack posted on Spotify and Apple music as a companion to the book. And it's literally the songs that either I was listening to while I wrote the book or songs for which the lyrics actually were inputs of strength for me during some of the hard times and failures that I detail in the book. So it's oh, like a cool. true authentic, like, you know, soundtrack for, for the text, you know? Yeah. What, what I love about that too, is like, you know, I, I grew up with kind of a, a subgenre of punk, we'll call it thrash. So I was, oh, yeah, really, yeah. Like, I was really into thrash metal and yeah. it's kind of the same foundation where it's, it's, uh, you know, it's all about that camaraderie, that community, you're not alone. And I think yeah. I'm always intrigued with people who grew up with that era because we have a different flavor on creativity than I think mm. maybe some of the, uh, more bland, uh, right. inspirational sources that we have at our disposal nowadays. Yeah. And then back then there was like the crossover, like there was this division between metal and punk, but then the crossover happened. Right. So it used to be that they were at odds with each other. You know, the metal heads would, would, you know, kind of clash with the punks, but then you had bands like DRI, you had bands like the Crumb Suckers, you had Metallica, like touting being into the Misfits or being into the Cro-Mags. Yeah. By the way, singer of the Cro-Mags, John Joseph, uh, uh, wrote the forward to failure rules, which was really cool. But you know, you had that blend. Right. And then obviously fast forward decades later, like, you know, the, the boundaries between, between genres are just completely blurred, you know, yeah. uh, whether it's punk, metal, hardcore, and people are mixing hip hop with it or what, what have you. And I like that. I like the genre bending, um, even while I still like, you know, some of the bands that, that maintain the lane of being pure to a certain genre, but I, I still enjoy <laughs> the, the mixing it up. Yeah. I have to imagine that getting into punk at such an early age, I mean, was that your first entry into what was possible for you as a creative or were you just kind of like just taking it in and not sure what your future held yet? hundred percent. It was like, you know, when I discovered punk rock and the marriage of that with like the street culture of BMX freestyle and skateboarding, I started my own zine, uh, you know, making stickers. And back then it's like, you know, Xerox and these, but like interviewing bands, interviewing skateboarders or BMXers or whatever, and putting that all under, like these zines, and like that was my first creative pursuit. And it really is like the DIY ethic, right? Yeah. That really gives you that like sense of what's possible. When I saw people around me that were doing things on their own, you know, maybe they latched on to partnerships and sponsorships, but first they got it going on their own, you know? And it was like, to me, that was like a gateway into entrepreneurialism, a gateway into like respecting the sovereignty of the individual, a gateway into, you know, somewhat libertarian ethos with a small L, you know, it was like all those things just connected to me yeah. and they've maintained, like, it's always like, I got an idea. Oh, you're not into it. All right. I'm going to find a way to do it myself. Right. Yeah. And it's just like, Oh, if you are into it, great. Let's partner up. If I can, you know, get some sort of sponsorship or financing or a partner, what have you. But if not, it was always this punk rock DIY do it yourself ethos that just made me like, if I had something burning inside of me, I was going to find a way to, try to get out in the world and see whether it failed or succeeded. And either one, I was going to be satisfied because I got it out of me, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. What was your first taste with failure? 
You know, I think it really was. Um, I mean, obviously, there's all kinds of flavors that affect your life, right? I, I talk about failure very generally in the book, right? It's everything from the general, uh, you know, experiential failure of being part of the human condition in an imperfect world, in an unsafe world. You know, it could be everything from having to deal with the effects of sickness or war and the failures and dysfunction that could cause in your life. Everything from that to actual failures uh, because of gaps of decisioning or or mistakes you made that could have been avoided or even just things going wrong because the, the free market is, is, is a wild place and you can't predict it. Um, but I think for me, uh, really, the biggest failure really started to happen when um, I went out on my own on my record labels after working in the music industry for about you know four or five years and building my record labels up on the side. I started to hit, hit some success and some good momentum, and I was being stretched too thin be between a day job and building these labels at, at night, mm -hmm. even though there was some synergy between the two. And um, you know, I went out on my own, and immediately as I went out on my own, there was the creative destruction of the conversion from the physical delivery model to the digital delivery model. And there was some turbulence that hit because of that. I overinvested in a few records and got overextended. And, uh, you know, it literally, uh, you know, it, it almost ruined me. I had to, uh, you know, scale back the record labels, lay off, you know, the, the part-time help, close down the office, lay off the publicist, pretty much strip the infrastructure and then convert it to just a management of IP rights and change the model entirely. Uh, and, um, you know, at that point too, you know, I was in, I was in debt, uh, uh, you know, with distributors and from returns and from over-investing in, in some records that would have taken a long time to recoup on. Um, and I, I ended up going through at the time, what was a personal bankruptcy, mm -hmm. which in the end allowed me to, to continue to have the ownership of the record labels and long-term, reap the benefit of maintaining the IP rights, particularly as the digitization matured mm -hmm. and the fruit of that became good. But in that, in that tunnel, like that hadn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, only maybe 10% of the sales were digital. So the IP rights really weren't worth much when the physical distribution model was bottlenecked and there's returns and limited shelf space. Uh, and I was in a hole, but uh, long-term it was a good move, but that was a, that was a brutal failure space. And when you're self-employed like that, um, you know, you're not really, if you're, if you're not officially on payroll, which I wasn't, it was draws mostly, then, you, you know, you don't have any unemployment to collect and you're in debt uh, and you lost your foothold in what was kind of your career, right? Mm -hmm. So that trying to go get a job after that was very, very difficult. And I have an entrepreneurial spirit. So like a job <laughs> job. I look for them, but uh, even if I had one, it probably wouldn't have paid as much as I needed to support my family. So at that time, I just um, I just started doing financial planning and just reinvented myself and retrained while still maintaining the labels on the side, um, you know. And then during that period too is when I started had this interest in spy novels, beginning reading spy novels in my free time, and got my interest in cigars too. They all kind of converged, <laughs> and uh, that's when I began writing my first spy novel too. So you know, it was it was kind of this really kind of fertile reinvention stage, which to mm -hmm. me was like, that's kind of where I first encountered failure. And mm -hmm. it was that mentality that kind of was the, uh, the genesis of this book in a lot of ways is yeah. all the good things that can come out of chaos when you leverage it as an idea engine and you learn to reinvent yourself and think of what's possible and think of the world as a wider place and see failure. Sometimes, even though it's difficult and it's messy, and sometimes failure just sucks. Let's face it. Right. it, it failure doesn't always rule. Like before, <laughs> it rules it suck anyway, right? So that's the, the tagline of the book: is 
after it sucks, failure rules, yeah. right? But it can rule, right? And failure rule number one is failure purifies. It's the idea of like, you know, the phoenix must burn to emerge. And so if you if you metabolize failure properly, you can see you know, that you're burning off old ways of thinking so new ways of thinking can emerge. And in those new ways, you can see new lights spring from the shadows. And you can see what new what is new and possible out there. You can go from running record labels that you still end up maintaining to also being in finance and banking and, uh, you know, eventually owning a gym and writing a spy novel. And, and <laughs> you, you, can, you can stretch yourself and become, live multiple lives simultaneously if you can orchestrate it with some sort of finesse and swagger, you know? And that's essentially was like, that was the magic that I learned that I wanted to kind of communicate in this book. Yeah. I love that. There's, there's several things that just hit me, uh, in, in a, in an enjoyable way. The first one was chaos as an idea generator. Yeah. I love that. Like when, when, when you're learning to tap chaos to create ideas, how do you, how do you know when to like hold on and when to let go mm. so that you don't get your arm ripped off from the chaos? Yeah. Of well, that that's a great idea. way to think of it. I mean, to get your arm ripped off if you hold too tightly, right? Yeah. I mean, it, go, it kind of goes back to failure rule number two, which is nothing is safe, yeah. which is really like a precept for embracing a life of non-attachment, right? Mm -hmm. And it's that non-attachment that allows you to see chaos less as a threat, mm -hmm. um, still something to be dealt with and contended with because it can be dangerous, but right. see it as an energy that you can try to steer and, and mold and shape more towards you know, new desires of your heart, right? So, I mean, like failure rule number two, I'll read the principle for the book for failure rule number two. Failure rule number two, again, is nothing is safe. And the principle is this, the world is inherently unsafe. Jobs, industries, economies, relationships, and physical health are all inherently unsafe. Therefore, meaning, fulfillment, survival, and prosperity can be found in holding tight to internal attachments and holding loose to that which is attached to the unsafe external world. Non-attachment to this unsafe world enables nimble reinvention. It allows a path toward being content in all circumstances. It produces the freedom for one to live to win in an unsafe world, in spite of having been born to lose. And the live to win, born to lose, of course, is the phrase you know made popular by Lemmy from Motorhead. Um, so you know, <laughs> even within that, I got I got the punk rock metal love, right? But That's it's right. this idea of like, all right, stop over-identifying with pursuits. Seek good outcomes, but don't rely on them and don't uh, tie your identity to them. And certainly have, have, have strong, ambitious expectations, but also if they don't come, come to fruition, have things in the back burner, have a portfolio pursuits mentality and learn that when things don't happen, have things on standby, ready to be enacted, ideas that you've already been cultivating. I got a cigar box where I just have sticky notes worth of ideas. I may not ever use them or enact them. I don't even remember what's in there, but that box <laughs> is there, right? It's like in times of chaos, leverage it as an idea engine. Go yeah. back to what you've been preparing for and find a way to figure out what your next version of yourself is going to be and how you're going to expand your own authenticity. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. I love that you're keeping the ideas that you're coming up with in a box, cigar box, be it that you're able to return to one day because I, I wonder how many ideas are lost when we don't catalog them. Yeah. You got to grab them. You got to grab them. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes I just send my note, a note to myself on the email, but I do have this cigar box where just write these sticky notes, just plop it in there. I might hardly ever use any of them, but I know it's there, you know, and when right. I was writing failure rules, I, you know, I shuffle through there and a few of them I picked out and they ended up being, you know, 
content in the book. So, mm -hmm. but it, it's, it's the practice really. I mean, James Altucher, the author of Choose Yourself, who was a huge influence on me for writing this book. That's one of the things that he does. He doesn't use cigar box, sticky notes. He writes 10 ideas a, down on, uh, ideas a day down on a waiter's pad. And it's just a practice. He hardly ever uses them, but they're there. It's, mm -hmm. it's the idea of learning how to generate ideas continually. So you always have a abundance mentality. You're never yeah. thinking that your options are limited because you're always thinking of what might be if it needs to be. Yeah. I was just reading comedy, comedy, comedy drama by Bob Odenkirk. And he, he talks, yeah, he's great. And it, he talks a lot about this where he's like, oh, I'm getting rejected. Well, I got another idea I'm working on. And so he always had an idea that he was yeah. continually working on. And in a way he became known as that idea generator, whether mm. they were good or bad. And, and I just, I love as creatives, we can have that mentality as opposed to, I can only live or die by this one idea. What a horrible yeah. existence. Yeah, you can't do that. It's funny you said that because I, I think of Better Call Saul, right? Mm -hmm. Which I actually write about in the book. That's one of my examples in the book is uh, I, I write several, um, you know, I, I think half a chapter on, you know, uh, Jimmy McGill, you know, Saul Goodman. And if he was anything in that show, it would mirror what Odenkirk's talking about, which he was an idea generator, right? <laughs> and the reason he was squirming uncomfortable uncomfortably at Davis and Maine is because they didn't like the fact that he had creative ideas. They didn't like the fact that he went out and made a commercial on his own that outshined their bland commercial, right? Like <laughs> right. he was an idea generator, like, and he was a reinventor, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and even though he was crooked and, and unethical, I mean, but if you negate that part and take, strip that out, baby right. bathwater, right? You can find, you know, the value in, the, in, in, that, in that way of being. So that's a great example, man. Yeah. Uh, another thing that you said earlier that that really made me think about was the tunnel. When when you're when you're firmly entrenched in failure, it's like you're in a tunnel. And in some ways it's like how do you learn to see the tunnel for the cocoon that it is? Mm -hmm. The way the way you were poetically talking it, it kind of made me think about that that it's more a cocoon less of a Stallone movie where you're trapped underneath the, you know rubble. Interesting. I love that. It's not a tunnel. It, it, it's a tunnel. It's a cocoon disguised as a tunnel. Right. Right. So it's something that's going to grow into. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's a, another beautiful way of kind of, of wrapping imagery around that state. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's part of the lesson of the book is like, you know, your circumstances are temporary. They are malleable. Um, if, if you're able to step back and be a objective observer of what you're going through and not an emotionally attached participant, Right. You will find a way to see good that can come out of it in most things, right? There's always exceptions to that, right? There are things that happen in this world that are so horrible. Even if good comes out of it, they're not good enough to negate the, the horror of something that someone experiences, right? So yeah. I'm not minimizing those type of experiences. But generally, um, you know, most failures, um, they, they, they can burn things off of you and you can find a way to reinvent. Mm -hmm. And um, like you said, birth new things. Yeah. Uh, out of the cocoon you're temporarily trapped in. Yeah. I'm I'm curious, Andrew, what what's your inner self-talk like? Because when when you learn to get through failure and have that objective, you know, non-attachment to things, I imagine you have to have pretty good self-talk. Yeah, right. I mean, well, I mean, first of all, I am I am a spiritual person, so I, I do have a faith. I'm not like a, a churchgoer or anything like that. I'm a, a very individualistic spiritual person but 
you know, that is a core for me. It's just like, you know, I, I see myself as a divine being. I see myself as, you know, n- not primarily this flesh. I don't have a soul. I am a soul that has a body and that's the way I view myself. Right. So I view the physical world and the circumstances of life to be very temporal, even when they're painful. So my self-talk is really shrouded around you know, an acknowledgement of my own eternality. So if I'm thinking of myself as an eternal being, temporary things, while they need to be addressed, they can cause anxiety and stress and all that stuff. You know, I don't let them overwhelm me. And I certainly don't attach it to my identity. Right. So it's like failure rule number five is you are not your failures, which is really one of, I think, the strongest rules in the book. Uh, I've been on some other podcasts where people are like that should have been number one. I'm like, well, I think it caps off. You know, I think sequentially you have to be purified first before you realize you're not <laughs> But so, but it's, I mean, that one is really it, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. I don't identify with my failures, right? I've learned to just say that is an event. It happened. Even if I contributed it to it happening and I could have avoided it or I made a mistake, you know, even if it's an ethical mistake, mm-hmm. I'm going to forgive myself. I'll deal with the consequences, the messiness, whatever it might be. And I am going to continue to love myself and move on. So, I mean, this idea of self-love and the self-love that's not shrouded in like, you know, uh, kind of uh, egregious braggadocious. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just literally loving yourself, loving your imperfection, embracing the idea of the Japanese term wabi-sabi, you know, that, uh, as David Lee Roth would say, it's perfect because it's a little fucked up. It's a love of imperfection. (laughs) And we get to love that in ourselves because we are all imperfect, but yeah. we're uniquely imperfect, right? We're all, we're all constructed differently. We're not like bricks where we're all the same. I mean, we're all like stones with our own special, like shiny spots and pock marks and, and grooves and what have you. And it's like that imperfection is, uh, is what makes us beautiful. And, and failure is a part of, of molding that uniqueness. Mm-hmm. And we have to take them and we have to, you know, turn them into, you know, unique parts of our, 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 you know, tumultuous, mysterious, glorious calling journey narrative. I really resonated when I was looking at your failure rules listing of number five, you are not your failures. You, you've been through some serious failure, like yeah. as a serial failure that, that you joking, <laughs> jokingly call yourself, you've yes. been through some shit. And so what? how, how do you, how have you learned to really embrace that be, eternal being as you are? allow the fire to purify you to feel the hurt and the pain and yet hold on to that vision of the future and be like, this is who I am. And this is what I want to do. How did, how did you learn to really hold on to those things that really mattered? Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's, it's just a practice of carving out times of excessive solitude for excessive reflection and, and, you know, and meditation and prayer reading and all those things and planning and um, you know, thinking about contingencies and thinking about if this, then what in the future, right? Um, and having an open mind about that and having multiple pathways that you're imaginatively constructed in your, constructing in your own mind of, of what you might do under different circumstances. And going back to the core of like, with all the, all the volatility and all the flux, you know, everything from, you know, going through a divorce to going through bankruptcy to, you know, abandoning a home to uh, being estranged from my son to, uh, you know, being under investigation by the feds for something I didn't do to being, uh, you know, threatened to be sued by three multimillionaires at the same time to losing businesses, all these things. I mean, I really see them as blessings while I don't want them to continue. <laughs> my life has been very stable and prosperous for the last 10 years, at least, you know, the first two decades of my adulthood were not, 
they yeah. made me who I am today. And they've given me this anchor of non-attachment. Like, do I want to lose it all? Hell no. I've done that before. It sucked. But if it happens, do I know how to do it and still be very happy and live a rich life, uh, you know, a non-financially rich life? Yes, I do. And so it's like, that is the lesson that I learned. It's just, it's just to enjoy and try to maximize your, your, your imprint and your, you know, um, you, you know, your interaction with the material and the, and the physical world. Uh, but at the same time, hold it loosely, man. Yeah. If it goes away, I'll go back to those internal attachments. I'm, a, I'm a, I'll find a way to rebuild because I still enjoy having things. You know, I like driving a Cadillac. I like smoking cigars in my hot tub. I don't want that to go away. But if it does, I'm gonna find a way to be happy anyway. <laughs> now that's a fun mental picture. <laughs> you sitting in your hot tub smoking a cigar. That's where a lot of the good ideas come from. <laughs> well, some people take a shower. Some people sit in their hot tub and smoke a cigar. Whatever works, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Whatever yanks your crank, man. You know. That's right. No, I think there's a lot of a lot of wisdom in what you just said because I I think. I think where my mind started thinking about was those contingency plans, those backup plans. And, and oftentimes you'll hear the advice of like, you know, I don't have a plan B I I'm just doing whatever I need to do to get you know yeah. what I need done. Yeah. But I, I do like this idea of having backup plans. Yeah. What, what yeah. do those look like? Well, it, it's, so I think that's something that I learned over time. Right. Mm-hmm. I think I probably had a a, a, a siloed vision of, of ambition early on. And, and it was the failures that really taught me that. And, and then the successful reinventions out of those failures and the curiosity yeah. adventure of reinventions that I realized, you know, I need to develop this mindset of continually thinking about what might be next. What is the adjacent possible? What's next to what I'm doing now that maybe I'll do if I need to, or mm-hmm. if things lean in that direction that can build upon, add to, uh, or even just be a, a a place to pivot to if this if this path isn't working, um, you know. And so, really, it's it's developing this failure prevention plan. So, failure rule number four, you know, this isn't like a book about failure porn about you know just failing no matter what and loving it. You know, and, right. No, I mean failure sucks, but it can rule because if you're doing difficult things, you're going to encounter it. So you might as well think about it ahead of time and figure out how you're going to deal with it, right? Maximize it, optimize it. So, failure rule number four is. Build your thing one and thing two dependency. And thing one and thing two has nothing to do with the cat in the hat. It's more like imagining like Tony Soprano waking up in his disheveled white bathrobe and smoking his first cigar of the day and saying, you know, you got your thing one enabler pursuit over here and your thing two North Star pursuit over there. And they go together. One enables the other. So it's really this idea of like building that scaffolding in your life, right? Where you might have this really kind of aspirational thing to North Star pursuit or dream, especially if you're creative. That might be, it's going to be really unsafe. You may not ever reach it, but you got to chase after it. But in order to do that, you know what? You can't just do that in a vacuum. You have to build some other potentially low meaning, boring, stable pursuits to give you that more safe framework to be able to chase after that other pursuit, uh, you know, in your free time or in the cracks of life. Right. And it's that idea. So I go, I go through some examples in the book of, um, you know, like uh, there was these, these, these brothers, I anonymized, anonymized them in the book, but these brothers I knew who um, they came from Lebanon uh, and they wanted to, they, they thought for the, that for them, the, the best way to kind of like find happiness uh, in America was to start their own businesses. Right. But they needed, they needed seed money. So what they did is they worked for Disney on ice for several years and no home. They lived on the road. 
Disney on Ice paid for their lodging and their food, so they had no expenses. They were yeah. able to just bank all their money doing something they don't like, low meaning. I mean, they didn't want to be selling like, you know, swag to to, to moms of, of little girls all day for, you know, princess stuff and Disney on Ice, right? But that's what they did. They took that seed money. So that was their thing one enabler. And that seeded their thing to dream, which they ended up building kind of like this retail portfolio of everything from gas stations to cigar lounges to gyms to even strip clubs all within this one town and now it's like they run shit you know like they they got they got a whole portfolio of things um but it was only from that sacrifice that creative thing one enabler yeah. that, that made, made them do that right so it's like you can't always just go straight forward after your dream you can't just drop everything quit your job you know not go to college although going to college isn't always the best path for a lot of people but you have to think about how you can build the framework to enable what you're going mm -hmm. after. And that, uh, you got to be creative about that. Yeah. I, I love thing one and thing two, because it sounds like based upon that story as well as like thing one can always change. Like the mm -hmm. things that you do mm -hmm. to make sure that you're funding your dream. Yes. And they might change a lot. Whereas thing two, that might be a little bit more stable, especially if it's something really big and scary. Something you're married to, like you yeah. feel like you're born to chase after, right. like regardless of whether it actually happens or the degrees of success that, that happen, you know, you had to chase after it or you're going to have future regret. Right. It's that elimination of future regret, which is part of the motiva motivation. It's yeah. not even the success of the, of the pursuits per se. You want that, but it's more like, I can't not try this. I can't not go after this or, mm -hmm. or, or you know, I'll be, something will eat me up inside. Like you get sick about it. Stephen Pressfield, author of uh, War of Art, talks about this. Like, yeah. you know, the whole wilderness idea, which is you running from some calling that you have to chase after, right? Like, it's going to eat inside of you. It's like Jonah being the belly of the whale when he was supposed to be in Nineveh and he's running to Tarshish and he should have been in Nineveh, right? And so trapped in the belly of the whale. It's like, you got to get out. You got to go after your calling. Stop being a pussy and go do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. You know, and it's that, it's that idea. But, um, you know, it's still like, like you said, your thing one can change because it's, it's utilitarian. Right. Uh, at the same time, the beauty of what I've discovered is I kind of go through examples in the book is even those things that are like the thing ones that might just be low meaning, just practical. If they actually enable your thing to North Star Pursuit, they end up having meaning of themselves. And you might actually learn skills in your thing one that help you in your thing two. And they can transpose and they can have kind of a synergy between the two of them. And then they add to the narrative if your thing two is successful. So I go through an example of Chris Wren from Bridge Nine Records and how he built his record labels. Like his first like 17 releases were underwritten by uh, another company. He started just to make cash to fuel it, which was called Yankee Suck. They made merchandise to sell at Red Sox games. Yankee <laughs> Suck shit. And they made a lot of money off that to, to, to fund these punk rock records. Some would say that's good money chasing after bad, but it's like, what a cool story. I mean, it even adds the narrative, right? It adds to like his, his brand and the story and like, I mean, and it's things like that. So it's, it's the idea that um, you know your calling might be achieved in a circuitous manner, right? Yeah, and and I love the languages of calling too, because I think when when you approach it at something that lofty, because calling is a lofty word, mm -hmm. it's not it's not something that you take lightly. No, I, I think when when you start using the thought of failure in relationship with calling, that's a different relationship than if it's just like, you know, failure and writer. Right. Because if you're failing at something that's not your calling, 
Yeah. It might just abandon the pursuit. It's too hard. You hit the obstacle. You know what? I'm going to go do something safer, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're doing something that you feel burning inside of you that you have to do, or you're going to have future regret if you don't do it, right? Uh, then failure is something that you're willing to deal with. Mm -hmm. You're willing to contend with. You're willing to try to manage and figure out. And it's the idea that when you're going after difficult, unorthodox, often off-road paths that don't mm -hmm. have a blueprint, that aren't achieved necessarily through a college degree, you know, particularly creative paths, like, you know, there's no blueprint on how you just go become a full-time comedian or you, <laughs> how you just, you know, uh, as many, you know, you know, courses as there are in entrepreneurialism, there's not really a blueprint on how to, you know, have a startup and have it be successful. I mean, most ideas do fail, right? And so like, it's something you really have to, I think premeditatively think about and understand and prepare yourself mm -hmm. to, to, the position, how you're going to deal with it when it comes, because it will come even while you try to avoid it. And it's better to have a plan and not have a plan. But Mike, Mike Tyson said, plans are great till you punch in the mouth. You're going to get punched <laughs> in the mouth at some point. That's right. Yeah. How, how do you visualize failure? Like visualize failure, right? Well, people on other podcasts, they've asked me, well, you know, if you, if you learn from it and and you grow from it, is it really a failure or is it just part of the process? Is it just a learning curve? And the way I answer that question is, well, you know, I think there's a difference between making a plan where you've built in iterative experimentation, where if X, Y, Z fails, you've already accounted for those costs, you expect it, you know that it's part of the process of finding that secret sauce or finding that rhythm. There's that. And then there's actual things that events that really are failures. So the example would be, you know, you're studying for a test and you're doing practice worksheets and you screw it up the first 10 times. Well, that's not failures. That's learning, right? You know, you're just experimenting. You're figuring it out. You're stumbling along, right? It's not really a failure. But you get to the point where you actually have the test. You should be prepared by that. You should have right. gone through that experimental learning and be ready to take the test. If you fail the test, it's actually a failure, right? So it's like, you know, if you you know, are working in a business on the side and you, you get to a point where you think it's sustainable, like I did building my record labels, and then you quit your job and then you go off and do this. And six months to a year later, the plan isn't working. That's an actual failure. So like that was an actual failure for me. If I was still just building it, mm -hmm. experimenting, iterating while I had my thing one job, I wouldn't have considered it a failure. But, uh, you know, once you go out on that ledge, and then the event is, is, is a failure, I think, at that point. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question exactly. What do you think of when you visualize failure? What was the root of that question? The root of that question was really thinking about, you know, you've got a pursuit that you're going after and you want to prepare for the inevitability that failure mm -hmm. might happen. Okay. So how do you how do you visualize all of these things that could happen without without shutting yourself down so mm. that you don't take action. I think that's so, really what that root of that question was, because I think you can, you can prepare so much that you're like, well, I don't want to do it now. Yeah. Even though I that think, might not happen. I think for me, what I've learned and, and what I've kind of the mindset I've approached with the book and everything I'm doing with the book, right? Because the book is just one piece of what I call the failure verse, right? Like I have the book, I also have a merch company that I launched, Soul on Fire Supply Company, which echoes the, the kind of the, the themes and the ethos of the book. Um, and, you know, I plan on doing speaking and, you know, coaching and all these other kind of tentacles, right? And I guess for me, it's saying um, to 
really minimize what I define as failure events. It's thinking broadly. It's thinking in a very long time horizon. While I would love for it to be shortened, it's, it's I'm thinking of a long time horizon to define what success and failure is. Mm-hmm. And it's you know approaching it with, with the understanding and the expectation that the plan will iterate over time. I have a plan. Uh, like Peter Thiel from Zero to One says, better to have a plan than, than not have a plan, like I said before. But you also, and I write about this in the book, is have a plan, but prepare to iterate, right? And it's the idea that like, you know, a pivot is not a change in vision, it's a change in strategy to reach the vision. So I think just having long time horizons when results and outcomes are unknown is helpful. Uh, yeah. So you don't feel like a failure when X doesn't happen at, 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 you know, at a certain point in time. You're like, okay, tried that. I already have three other things that I knew I'm going to try if this didn't work. And it's having that kind of stack of redundancy of um, you know sequential efforts that you're going to enact as as certain things you know fail or don't succeed the way that you think they'll succeed or become just a piece of the plan. It's like really having a multi-layered plan, um, and I wouldn't say lowering expectations, but tempering expectations, um, so that um, you know what otherwise might feel like a failure event. Uh, just feels like a plan because you yeah. knew that within the plan there was going to be some things that didn't work and you already have step two and step three that you're going to enact when when step one doesn't work yeah i like that you mentioned the timeline too because oftentimes when i've heard people say you just really need to embrace failure they <laughs> i don't feel like they understand the longevity of failure and and thinking long-term, I think I I sometimes imagine them waving a magic wand going, we're just going to magically fix this. And, but nice. I mean, failure is part of a long-term process that just doesn't change overnight. No, it doesn't. And so, I mean, I was particularly talking about building plans in your timeline that kind of avoid failure, avoid the feeling of failure, but failure itself, when it actually strikes, you know, again, it goes back to the tagline of the book, like after it sucks, then failure rolls. But while it sucks, like sometimes it sucks for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like it could be some failures might suck for like a year where you're still feeling the emotional effects. You're still cleaning up and digging out potentially financial effects or just, uh, you know, trying to reorganize your life and find the hooks into your next best step or, or you know, still trying to figure out what that next reinvention looks like. Like it's not instant. Um yeah, there's things you can do, as I talk about in the book, to prepare yourself to, to make that, um, that tunnel slash cocoon smaller. And that's the goal, right? It's part of the big reason I wrote this book. Yeah. Um, but sometimes, you know, you, you just have to feel it. You have to let the feel the burn, you know, mm-hmm. before the phoenix emerges. You know? Yeah. So you mentioned 480 pages. When you set out on this journey to write failure rules, like, did you just sit down one day and start writing and out came 480 pages or did you, no. did you know that you were going to have that big of a story? No, I mean, it, the, the Genesis was, I was uh, taking a beach walk around a time, a very tumultuous time where I had just gone through a business divorce. Uh, my financial life was being reorganized. My main income source had gone away and I was having to like lean on other income sources and create new ones. And I had to take this long beach walk and I was, you know, at the time on the precipice of a marital divorce, so there was that tumult going on. I was thinking about the last two decades of my life. This was, I was, you know, almost 40 at the time, thinking about my 20s and 30s, like, man, I have learned too much through all these things I've gone through. And it almost felt like for the 
first two decades of my adult working life, it was like every three to six months, some bomb blew up and there was some near catastrophe that would failure that would, that would come on, on my lap. And I was thinking about all the lessons I learned and even more like the virtual mentors that I leaned on to help me get through them and some of the other inspirational inputs, whether it be you know from books or from music or what have you. And I was listening to the Cro-Mags and the Motorhead and the Beach. And I was just like, you know what? I felt convicted. Like I have to write a book on the value of failure. And I just jotted down some ideas that day. It was rough and uh, did eventually separate from my ex-wife at the time. And uh, I was, um, you know, living in a hotel room, no office to go to by day, no home to go to by night. And again, leverage chaos as an idea engine. And that's when I began writing the book. Uh, and the first draft, like Hemingway says, all first drafts are shit. The first draft was shit. <laughs> um, but I kind of got through that. It was mostly just me telling my stories and what I thought I learned from them. Um, but then as I went back and iterated on new drafts, it got more and more uh, refined. I then layered in a whole bunch of very diverse case studies. I mean, everybody from you know uh, professional bowler Tom Smallwood to author Stephen Pressfield to you know billionaire Sarah Blakely to um, uh, spy novelist Vince Flynn to punk rocker Henry Rollins, to all, you know, to all these different case studies that aligned with like kind of the things that I was learning. That their story echoed some of the things that I learned through failures. Uh, and they distilled into five rules as I kept reading over it. Like, and the, the structure of the form kept, like it kept revealing itself from draft to draft. But it took um, seven years for me to write it. And then a whole other year and a half working with the edi editing team at Lion Crest Publishing to really get it in the shape it was in. Um, so now nothing is ever just a, you know, <laughs> a one dump and done. I mean, that's not how writing works. You know? yeah. Was, was that hard for you to like, have it take that long or was it just part of the process and you were fine? No, with it? I thought it was great because it would be spurts of like um, uh, momentum that, that would kick in. But I think it took that long for me to have to mature myself uh, and to have more experiences. And because I knew I was writing it, like things would happen in my life or ideas I would learn about that would feed into it. And it took that time for all the, all those inputs to mature and it made the book what it was supposed to be. I mean, if I just blasted it out in a year, it wouldn't be what it's supposed to be. Or what it did yeah. now. That's cool. You've mentioned several times, Andrew, in this conversation, the unorthodox and off the, the road path of yeah. creativity. Is that something that you always want for your life? Because I, 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 I think of the famous creators who they make a mark at their earliest point of their life. And then as they excel in their greatness, they hit a point where you're like, are you just done? Right, right, and right, right, like, right. You know, I won't name names, but it's it's just one of those things where it's like, did they want to make that mark their entire life? Or is that the natural progression? Or, you know, so it's like when you say unorthodox off the road, it's like, to me, it's like you keep making your mark, but you're still, you know, willing to to take a chance on, yeah, on yeah. take that risk, that creative risk yeah. that maybe, you know, is harder as you get older. Well, yeah, I think it's harder. It can be harder as you get older, but I think it really depends too. I mean, I think for me, I have more of a platform of stability with my thing one day job, which I actually love and find a lot of joy and pleasure in and is very lucrative. Uh, and just my position in life having been, you know, have been a stretch of prosperity over the past 10 years where I actually 
it's actually easier for me to go off road yeah. and have that separate part of my life because I have this stability over here that can undergird and, and uh, underwrite it, right? Uh, and, and balance it. So I think it just depends on your position. Yeah. I think when it's when it's again siloed and it's not part of a portfolio pursuit or a thing one, thing two dependency, then it's harder. I mean, I think of um, you know, like like Henry Rollins, singer for Black Flag, when he quit his job at the ice cream store and joined Black Flag and embraced punk rock poverty and ended up eating dog food on the road. That's <laughs> off-roading, right? Yeah. But I, I don't think he wants to do that now, nor does he need to, but he can still be authentic and take chances. I mean, now he is who he is, right? He's won a Grammy for an audio book uh, reading of his book, Get in the Band. He's been in tons of movies. He's a he's spoken word artist, all these other things, right? So I think the off-road part is part of, uh, you know, part of the getting it going, part of, part of the finding attraction and figuring out, you know, how you're going to make it work uh, in a path where nobody's going to hand you that sequential linear blueprint to, to follow. Yeah. I, I don't want a, the sequential linear blueprint myself. And uh, so I'm glad that there's examples out there. Of yeah. People who don't want that either. And they're yeah. not just like, that they're finding some success. Cause I think when yeah. you have that model of success, it gives you not just a blueprint, but it gives you hope. Yes. Cause I think yes. that's something that you need. And I think the hope comes with, you know, the off-road piece isn't meant to be permanent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the authentic risk taking can still take place, but it can take place with a backdrop of stability that can justify the risk. Yeah. But you have to go off-road sometimes to even get to that point of accomplishment. So again, I'll bring up Stephen Pressfield who talks about being in the wilderness and he was homeless and living out of his car and, you know, and then he would go in and out of, you know, different jobs, odd jobs throughout the country. He's kind of running from his writing calling. And then even when he embraced his writing calling, it, it, uh, you know, triggered a divorce and he would go work these jobs for four years, save up money and then quit and go burn it to write a book. They had no idea what sell. Right. So that was all the off-roading, yeah. but eventually it did get him to the point now where he puts out a book, it's going to sell tons. And now he has this stability. And he's still authentic. He can still take he can take even more risks in his writing because he has a following, right? Mm -hmm. So I think like the off-roading is not because it's not fun. It's not it's not really something you, that you want. Like that's not the goal. That's part of the process sometimes mm -hmm. um, to get to do what you're meant to do. But obviously, you want to find a way where you can do that from you know a platform of, of more stability and joy while still being authentic and take risks, right? right? I, th I think I've kind of reached that point in my, in my life yeah. with the diversity of pursuits. But, um, but you know, there was those years, there was those years of like, when I started my record labels, I was freshly unemployed, freshly married and um, you know, was delivering pizzas and maxed out my credit cards to start a record label and was shadowing people, right? Like the risky move that was off roading. But even though there was, there was turbulence and problems, I mean, years later on the rights over 120 releases, um, you know, I still see it as a, 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 a piece, a successful piece of my work-life tapestry. Yeah. That's awesome. So as, as you look into the next, you know, season of life, you know, where does the unorthodox piece fit in for you? Yeah. I mean, I think right now, like I have other things I may want to do in the future. Cause I always, I got those sticky notes in the cigar box. Right. But for now it's like failure rules is, is, is enough. I, I kind of have a multi-year plan um, where, you know, I, I want to do more with the clothing company attached to it. I have to learn 
uh, how to actually sell books. So there's all kinds of things I'm doing with that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing the podcast tour now. I'm going to keep that going for another 12 to 18 months within earnest and try to build that up and give it as much footprint as possible. You know, learning how to run Amazon ad campaigns and working with professionals on that and you know, learn how to get speaking gigs. Like there's all kinds of new things I have to learn, you know, social media, all of that. Um, so and, and I'm going to start a podcast probably 2024. So I'm building up a network and a, a prospective guest list for that. So like there's enough meat on this bone here to like keep yeah. me busy for the next three years of off-road experimentation to see if this can be something. Mm-hmm. And people ask me, how's the book doing? I'm like, well, it's exactly where it needs to be right now. But I really won't know what it is for the, in another couple of years because there's a lot left in the plan. Yeah. Right? But this is my this is this is the off-roading piece, right? While I continue to enjoy working at day job, you know, in the financial technology space and banking. Uh, where you know I don't have to worry about so much of the risk of the off-roading because yeah. they all set. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what I what I, what I'm laughing at is like I I I see your younger self yelling at you going sell out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, well, there was good. There was part, that's part of it, right? It's part yeah. of it's you know there was a stage where it's like man, I went from like <laughs> never setting an alarm clock, never covering up my tattoos, and uh, being an entrepreneur for 15 years, self-employed and married, all of a sudden I was single and I was setting an alarm clock and I was like a banker and I was like, you know, button up every day. That was difficult to swallow at first, but eventually I found a way to really express my authentic self, even in this new environment, and really make my environment a product of me uh, instead of the other way around. I write about that in the book uh, and really learning that like, you know, the expression of your authentic self is dynamic and can evolve, right? It's about how you impress yourself upon new certain situations and expand your authentic self. So uh, uh, in the end, I think that was a lesson, but it was very tough at first because it felt like it wasn't me. You know, Mm -hmm. I felt like I was, you know, someone else. Um, But I was. I was learning how to be someone else that eventually became part of who I am today without losing my old self. Right. And and that's the cool part. It's the integration. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, Andrew, as we wrap up our time together, what's one thing, one nugget you want to leave in people's mind right now? Uh, one nugget. I mean, I'm going to go back to non-attachment. Don't over-identify with your pursuits. Don't ever identify with you know your current talent stack. Constantly be, be thinking about ways you might reinvent yourself if you need to. Uh, keep your attachments internal. You know what are the the kind of uh, you know eternal attributes of who you are that are applicable regardless of what you do in the world. And, and make make those make those uh, attachments your your uh, your your highest right. Um, and then secondly, uh, I would say uh, if you're interested in any of this, I'd love for you to buy the book. Uh, you can go to andrewthorpeking.com. No e on the end of Thorpe. Also, you can sign up for the free failure rules mini course there, and then you'll also be on my email list to get weekly failure 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 wisdom sent to your uh, inbox. Um, and you can connect with me on Instagram there. Got a great YouTube channel with some produced videos that. Uh, animate the themes in the book in a different way and some kick-ass merchandise from soul and fire supply company you can access through the website so andrewthorpeking.com knowing on the end of thorpe that's awesome well andrew what's uh blowing your mind right now in terms of music or movies or books uh yeah i'm, I'm always building my list of things to read yeah, yeah, yeah. and to engage with that's a great question so instead of movies i'll say tv show i've been watching i'm probably a little uh late on this train but slow horses of Gary Oldman on Apple TV, okay, it's, uh, yeah. like British spy house, and they're like the reject spy house, <laughs> and he's like this 
dirty, charismatic, legendary kind of, you know, spy master. I love spy stuff. Love that show. Slow Horses. <clears throat> Albums, I would say uh, the new album by Blood Clot, which is uh, John Joseph, who wrote the Forward to Failure Rules. Also, he's also a triathlete and wrote the book, The PMA Effect. But his new album from his band, Blood Clot, it's called Souls. It's uh, metal hardcore. It's like Slayer meets the Bad Brains. It's freaking awesome. Uh, so I'd say that. And then um, books, I would say, um, wow, there's lots of great books I've been reading lately. You know, one of the books, it's, it's a bestseller, but one of the books that I read recently was uh, The Psychology of Money. Uh, I forget the, the author's name. That was a really, really great book around money. Uh, so I would say that. Um, and then um, you know, Discipline is Destiny by Ryan Holiday is another book that I really enjoyed this year. Awesome. Well, yeah. Andrew, thank you so much for being a guest on Getting Work to Work. It's fun to close out the year with you and to uh, share your book, Failure Rules. I hope everyone will pick it up. I know I can't wait to pick it up and dive into it because this is certainly a topic that uh, I could use some learning in. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Chris. Been a blast. As we end 2022 and head into a new year, I hope there was a lot in this conversation with Andrew that got you thinking about new possibilities. The question that I have for you as we end this episode is this, how are you continuing to build your portfolio of pursuits? More so, how are you going to build that portfolio of pursuits within the lens of what Andrew described as thing one and thing two? I love focusing on thing one as the things that will bring you stability while you chase after those giant dreams. Big questions for the end of the year. I hope you're going to find some time in the coming days and weeks to really unpack that for yourself. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.